Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Airmit Talks, the UK Risk and Insurance Management Association's fortnightly podcast. This episode is the first in three instalments focusing on the Airmit annual survey titled Top Risks and Megatrends 2020. The report was released on 1st of July and a link to the full paper is in the episode description. The survey is based on 150 responses gathered from AIRMIT members between 14th of February and 31st of March, as well as several qualitative member roundtables. Over the next three weeks, we'll be hearing from subject matter experts from our five survey partners, AIG, Control Risks, KPMG, QBE and Willis Towers Watson on the hot topics of governance, cyber, reputation, resilience, geopolitics and the environment. Now, in the next 30 minutes, we will hear first from Julia Graham, Deputy CEO and Technical Director of AIRMIC, who oversees the whole survey project, and then Lucy Stambrough, Research Manager for Willis Research Network on Emerging Risk, at Willis Towers Watson on one of our five key megatrends on geopolitics. The survey, Julia, is a really comprehensive piece of research as as ever. And congratulations to you, Ho Young and the five survey partners for a fantastic piece of work. There is plenty to, to get into with statistics on our profession, a rundown of the, the biggest risks facing organizations today and, and deep dives into the five megatrend areas, as well as really some great discussion on resilience and, of course, the seismic shift we're seeing in the insurance market right now. Julia, I know AIRMIC took a leading role in the climate and environment section in particular, and we'll come on to that. But first of all, I thought it'd be good really to get your kind of main initial takeaway from the report. Okay, thank you, Richard. Um, that's uh, obviously the key question, I think, as uh, it's a report from the members for the members. And I'd like to thank the members for their contribution as well, because not only did they fill in the typical survey report, but we also had several roundtable meetings with our members. And all of that was uh, part of the pot that we used for drafting the report. So um, to answer your question specifically, I think the big takeaway from the report um, for our members is the continuing opportunity there is for risk professionals to take a more strategic role. And I think this is not a new subject, but I think what the report has done and its conclusions have identified is that that opportunity has increased Why do I think it's increased? Well, I think it's been reinforced by their COVID-19 experiences, which they've shared with us, when some of the more traditional approaches to crisis management and business continuity simply flew out the window. And I think it was when risk management knowledge and experience came to the fore as being very helpful in supporting the leadership of organisations and particularly the C-suite and the board. And I think the reason for that is that two key success factors are there and evident. One is leadership and the other is agility. And when I've talked to members during those roundtables and indeed since, those seem to be the things where risk professionals are very well positioned to stand up, step up and support their organisation. So it isn't having even the best crafted plans that sit on the shelf and take a bit of time to get into a kickstart and operate. It's all about the leadership from the top and how quickly and agile that leadership is deployed. Yeah, and obviously never never, uh, a more relevant time than today to to have that agility to deploy 
plans that you may already have uh, on the shelf, as you said. Obviously, the survey was conducted really primarily at the outset of, of COVID-19 and before its impact was truly felt closest to home in Europe. The pandemic um, and pandemic risks has had already risen, however, when we conducted this survey to number four in our 2020 risk ranking, whereas in 2019, pandemic wasn't even in the top 10. What do you think the, the pandemic has, has taught the risk profession and our membership, which they maybe didn't know or, or recognise uh, prior to it? Well, I, I think the first thing for me, Richard, uh, and that's, that's a, a really great question, um, is don't be over-reliant on your risk registers to tell you what you should focus on. Because that's um, one of the hmm. culprits for why I think some organisations didn't have their eye on the right ball. Because risk registers typically, I'm not saying always, but typically are created by looking at the uh, impact or magnitude and the probability or frequency of a risk. And then those two metrics are calculated into a severity index. Uh, and even the World Economic Forum, to some extent, follow that type of methodology, albeit it's rather more scientific than the one I've just discussed. But if you take those two metrics and you use uh, a methodology to calculate severity, what ha often happens is these high impact, low probability risks fall off the radar because when you multiply 10 by 1, it's still 10. And therefore, if pandemic is very high, on the uh, impact list, but very low on the probability list, in a severity index of, say, the top 10, it often falls off the list. And this is true of many of these slow or fast emerging risks, which have this potential uh, ability for catastrophe. So I think that's the first thing you need alongside. You have to have risk registers, uh, and I do think they have a place. I, I wouldn't totally get rid of them. And many regulators insist that you do have them. So that's another very good reason. But don't over rely on them to tell you what the top issues are. Alongside that, you need processes for things like horizon scanning, so that you can look on your radar what's coming over the hill and do that repeatedly. Um, and often risk registers that might be looked at by a board a couple of times a year often is not sufficiently time sensitive to help you do that. So what do I think the pandemic has taught the risk professions? Well, I'm, I'm going to be very naughty here and I'm going to lean on a paper that I like very much that uh, was not written by me or by Ernick, but was published by the French University INSEAD. And that paper is called A Crisis Management Blueprint for COVID-19. And this was written relatively early into the stage of the pandemic. Uh, and we've got, in fact, one of the professors who wrote this uh, paper speaking at Air Fest in September, which I'm delighted about. But they sum it up into five key things, which I think are really helpful. Um, what the risk manager should be doing is engage, get your framing of risks right, and don't base your scenarios that I mentioned on wishful thinking. Base them on what you know. Explore, focus on the achievable, not the aspirational and then concentrate on what you said you're going to do. Explain, communicate what you plan to do, why you plan to do, and then importantly, do it. Execute, keep looking back at your records. You know, one of the classic things you do when you have a crisis is that on day one, you start an archive of what you've said and what you said you're going to do. It's incredibly useful to keep going back through that archive 
reviewing it and adjusting your plans. But if you don't keep an archive, you can't do that. So a contemporary archive is critical. And then evaluate, step back, what worked and what didn't work. And I think at the moment with fears of a second spike, you might need to know those things sooner than you think. Now that all sounds incredibly obvious, but I don't think when you look back at what some organisations did, it is as obvious as it seems. And I do think in Europe, as opposed to parts of Asia, we did rely more on wishful thinking than objective consideration. And when you look at some of the countries that responded very well to COVID-19, they are often the countries who've had disease issues before. And when they've recovered, they've stepped back and they've worked out what was good and what wasn't good. And they've adjusted their responses accordingly. Absolutely, Julia. I think that's a really nice summary. And I think what I will do is uh, certainly link, I'll put a link to that paper in this episode description. So listeners can find that quite easily just from clicking through on that link. Now, one of the other uh, issues uh, highlighted in the report and Emmett took a lead on is the climate crisis. And I thought uh, Ho Young, the report author, picked out a really excellent quote from The Economist, which describes the pandemic as, quote, like watching the climate crisis with your finger jammed on the fast forward button. And I think I took a second back just to think about that again this morning when I was drafting my questions and I think it makes a lot of sense and there should be a lot of warning signs there for organizations and governments. It's going to be essential uh, that governments and organizations don't take their eye off the ball with regards to the climate crisis as tempting as it may be with the immediate threat of of COVID-19 at our door today. And there is an argument that they, you know, already didn't truly have their eye sufficiently on the climate cha- uh, climate challenge. Our report highlights the risks associated with uh, climate-driven politics, transition risks, and the uncertainty surrounding insurers' response to climate-related litigation or claims, for example. How should risk? I know it's a big question again, Julia, a very broad question, but how should risk professionals be addressing these challenges related to the climate crisis internally? There is a big debate at the moment, too. Well, I say big debate is probably a bit of an exaggeration, but there's a modest debate about how sustainable some of the effects of COVID-19 might be on climate change. And there's a couple of schools of thought, uh, even within the same organisations, by the way. Um, But these schools of thought are that uh, some of the impacts that have benefited climate change from COVID-19, for example, Uh, lower emissions, which have resulted from lower use of fuel, fewer aircraft in the space, fewer people commuting. Are they going to be sustainable or are they not going to be sustainable? Um, Some of them, I think the answer is it depends. Um, There will be some sustainable effects of COVID-19. But I think what people have to do is not get caught in those headlights and get too distracted by them. But if I give you a couple of examples, first of all, there will be some sustainable improvements because some people will not go back to working in an office or in other place of work and they will stay working at home. And, and I draw to your attention the press release from Fujitsu last week, which said that if you want to, you can stay at home and you don't have to go back ever. Um, and so that's perhaps at one extreme. But I would be very surprised if everybody went back to doing what they did before. And I do think the commuting levels, the office occupancy levels must and will change. And the climate change impact of that and the impact on the environment is going to be sustainable. And I think that sustainability is for the long term. 
in, in other senses, um, as I've said, don't get caught uh, in the headlights. There are reporting requirements coming along globally, and organisations are going to be compelled to say what they're doing. And boards of directors should have this very high up their agenda, and they should be thinking about what they're doing. Um, and I think the big challenge is it's one, one action to think about something. It's a much more difficult action to do something about it. And the focus will increasingly be on not the rhetoric, but on the actions. You know, what can you do? Um, and there will be some useful work, particularly coming out of the insurance companies, which I've been noticing, where they're looking now at um, taking in uh, climate change and sustainability generally into their models. And they're also now looking for more risk financing or value adders to risk financing that support the whole agenda of climate change. So I think it's take the benefits that are there. Keep your eye, however, on the focus and um, for two reasons, reporting and uh, action-oriented activities rather than rhetoric. Just lastly then, Julia, we couldn't discuss the survey without addressing insurance and, and the, the seismic shift, as we describe it, the market is going through and our members are having to suffer uh, right now and our members' organisations. It's important to note that you know, AMIT members do represent around £10.5 billion in annual insurance spend. That's £10.5 billion. They spend around £75.8 million on professional fees for risk management services and £254.2 million for insurance services such as brokers' fees. You know, there's been obviously rate increases across many, many lines, Julia, as we're hearing, but the real standout problem, and I want to just focus on this briefly, appears to be the continuing DNO price increases with 80% of our respondents noting price rises and 13% saying uh, they've more than doubled. Now, while those figures are telling and bad enough as it is, if in my opinion, it really doesn't reflect some of the individual horror stories we've been hearing from our members in, in the DNO area, does it, Julia? No, I think you're absolutely right, Richard. I think that's a very astute observation. Um, price, of course, is important. Um, it's never an easy discussion to go and talk to your finance director and explain to them that a particular premium has increased. Uh, I mean, some of the upper increases I've heard are just beyond belief. Um, but it's not unusual now to hear a three or 400%. That was extraordinary a short while ago, but I don't think it's mm. extraordinary anymore. And the rate, the sign that I'm seeing is that the increases are still coming through. Um, I've got some sympathy in, in, in as much that um, the insurance industry have underpriced this line for years, but you can't make up the evils of the past over, a, say, a decade in one go. Um, and it's certainly not the buyer's fault if you're offered quality terms by a quality insurer at keen rates, you'd be a very naive individual not to say thank you rather than say no, you know, um, give me a rate that's more reasonable because you, you wouldn't last in your role very long if you did something like that. But I think there are several things that are starting to happen. And I think this is some of them are indicative of insurance generally. And I do think that the whole industry is at something of a crossroads. This cover is almost becoming unattractive and basically unavailable. And I think increasingly what organisations are doing is looking for realistic alternatives. Whether those alternatives are down the route of a captive or whether, as some interesting entrepreneurs have done, is self-insurance or a bit of a combination of the two. But the insurance market is losing serious credibility over this subject. 
So that's just on pricing and also on uh, deductibles uh, and limits of cover, because you're right, it's not just a price issue, it's what's the capacity for this cover, which is, I'm seeing, often halved, and what are the deductibles that you're being asked to pay? And often the cover is half, the deductible is much more, is much increased, and actually you're paying the same premium as you paid the year before for a much inferior solution. But what I'm also seeing and hearing stories of is behaviour. Now, the whole insurance industry is built on a foundation of trust. That, that's what it's all about. It is, it is a, an industry that the buyer can trust. And I've seen a few issues uh, which are close to breaching that trust. Late renewal notifications, notifications of terms which then at the last minute are changed. Um, uh, uh, with very little opportunity for a, a member to do anything about it because it's so late in the day um, that they're almost held hostage uh, over what those terms are. A bit of, in some cases, almost an ambivalence that, well, you're lucky to have the rate, so here it is, go away and, and um, deal with it. And I'm, I'm feeling that there's a little bit of a loss of partnership and service in the relationship between the insurer, broker and customer, which is really unhealthy and will take a long time to repair, in my opinion. The other thing is you need a quality board to run a quality organisation because you want the best governance that you can get. And if we're not careful, the limitations and the way that those limitations are being managed for DNO is going to challenge whether or not certain people want to stay on boards or whether you can actually attract the type of person that you want on your board. So it goes very deep, ultimately, into the way that organisations are governed and the quality of that governance, um, which has been driven by an insurance product, which absolutely seems extraordinary. So I think the insurance industry has to step back and examine its conscience. It has to examine its purpose. And I hope it will do that, and I hope the result of it will be not, uh, uh, yes, we got the price wrong and it's X. Of course, that's not going to happen. But I think this is much more about behaviour than it is about price. And what I'd like to see restored is, is the great partnerships and the level of trust that existed between our members and the other stakeholders in the industry being restored um, to the level that it was at before. And I think a lot of that trust and partnership has sadly been eroded. Well, that introduction from Julia Graham really sets up the next five interviews over the next two and a half episodes really nicely, I think. And I'm delighted to say that I'm now joined by Lucy Stambra, Research Manager for the Willis Research Network on Emerging Risks at Willis Towers Watson. Lucy, let's start by looking at the risks and megatrends map of the survey. We can see the red squares are the ones directly related to geopolitical risks, economic outlook, unsurprisingly right at the top, number three, as identified by our members. Do any of these results broadly uh, surprise you? And what, what do you take from them? Mm. I think I'm not surprised to see cyber dominate the top section, um, which I think is really good to see how understanding continues to increase um, and the work by companies to really instill cyber awareness and positions into the business. I was surprised to see tech wars down in 22 and societal change kind mm. of midway in 15th, especially given, you know, the global outbreaks of, of social unrest that we saw in, in unexpected places, you know, like Hong Kong. But that's why I really like 
surveys like this because, you know, digging down into the views at different times shows you the challenges that boards and risk managers are really having to go through to try to prioritise that risk landscape. So, you know, it's, it's really against that snapshot in time, which is why um, I, I got my phone out to do a quick check because I noticed that the, the variance was only 1.79 between risks 1 and 25. Um, which pleased me because uh, it was good to see that mm. it was as difficult for everyone else to um, to rank them as I found it. Uh, and I think it'll be, you know, it'll be interesting to look forwards as well, um, because obviously since we've had the survey, we've had increasing um, China-US tensions um, uh, and we'll have to see how, you know, the UK-Hawaii decision um, about removing 5G tech by 2027 goes uh, and whether any other countries follow suit. So but I'll be keeping an eye on, on that one for next year. But I think the biggest overall one for me is that even though we've only got five geopolitical risk red squares on there, is that absolutely every single one of those risks on there has geopolitical connotations to them. So I think that that yep. for me is is the big takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. I think your I think your point about a snapshot in time is is really relevant and important for whenever you conduct surveys because of course this survey was conducted February March time mm-hmm. and of course coronavirus was already in the news uh, but it was in the news as something far away at that point or just arriving on, on our shores closer to home and also your your point about social unrest is interesting of course because the Black Lives Matter campaign was not in full swing at that point and I think we saw that the pandemic came in around number four in the top 20 risks, mm-hmm. uh, not the risk megatrend map. And of course, if you'd ask that question two months later, pandemic may well have been number one uh, and social unrest may well have been a lot higher as well. But you, met, you mentioned there, Lucy, regarding kind of the interconnectivity of these risks and how all of those do have a, a geopolitical angle. How important is it, do you think, for risk professionals and, and our members to get hold of that interconnected nature and, and and understand that in a way that makes sense? I mean, I think it's it's absolutely essential. Um, you could look back at the entire top 10 risks or, or the mega trends and find secondary effects just related to this one pandemic. Um, and, you know, there's also the potential for, for clash events because as much as we would like to hope so, all of the other risks don't go away. Cyber attacks, floods, earthquakes, terrorism incidents could all still occur. Uh, and, you know, that was really a, a question that we asked ourselves when we were looking at our Willis Towers Watson geopolitical r- risk initiative. Um, you know, considering how do you look at, at resilience? And that's why we came up with this structured hexagon approach um, that you'll see on our initiative page that explicitly looks at that interconnections. Um, and, and, you know, those lenses match very well with the AMIT categories, except that we've got a, a dedicated lens for those people risks. But yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it, it's really essential. Um, and it's also important to get expertise in those different areas and, and pull it together to explore those, you know, future events and, and the second and third order impact, um, because that's where that's where the unexpected happens. Um, so we find that, you know, once you explicitly look at that interconnectivity, once you set that risk landscape, it, it leads to, to much richer conversations uh, and, you know, allows you to do things like scenario development, like red teaming and getting a getting an, uh, an external view to support risk management. Um, and I think it's, you know, this systemic view of risk and resilience is, is going to be really critical to get a handle on. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, never more important for people to to stretch their thinking. In fact, in, in the run up to, to to this interview this week, I was reading a, a really fascinating article on the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries news site by Neil Cantle that I would recommend any listeners go check out, who I think 
really nailed the concept for me. His piece was called, it was on the risk register. Um, and I think that's a, a really interesting point because if a risk is on the register, then we like to think it means that we've thought it through, that, that we know at least some of the things um, that we would do to reduce the negative effects on it. And, you know, it makes us feel safer and more prepared. Uh, and I find that really interesting in the context of this pandemic, because a lot of companies had it on their risk lists. Um, but I've yet to see a, you know, a business scenario on the scale of which we've seen COVID. And yet it was number one on the national risk register a few years ago. Um, and I think that had seen, you know, very interesting um, connotations around business continuity plans, which you know, more often than not said, you know, we're going to move to a secondary location. Um, they didn't say that you would need to get the finance director on the phone to release the fund for 5,000 laptops um, and that every other business was going to be competing for those same supplies. So I think that, you know, explicitly diving into those connections and considering the up and downsides is going to be essential because you're never going to get an event completely right, but you can learn where your stress points are and then make the changes um, to increase your resilience so that when the next thing happens, you can move quicker. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the survey really points out in the early chapters that while the pandemic, as you said, was was on people's you know, risk radar, on their risk registers, it kind of this, the sheer speed, velocity and kind of far reaching nature of the impacts of the of the of a pandemic uh, maybe hadn't been totally comprehended mm. by organizations. It maybe caught some organizations out, you know, the 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 shutdown of global travel, the very fast move to uh, working from home and and you know national lockdowns of whole countries i think it has caught many organizations out obviously in light of the pandemic you know people risk health and wellness is a, is a real big factor and and has been emphasized even further and it was already high on the agenda of many organizations before the pandemic so many of these mega trends and risks have people elements to them so i guess it's vital and it's it's our new chair tracy skinner's chosen topic for for this year is is people risk and uh, kind of people safety and wellness it's vital that organizations really bring back a lot of these risks directly to how it impacts upon their people yep definitely um and you know i'm going to be keeping an eye on, on the airmic program in this area because you know people risks are our major drivers um you know and we like to think about them in terms of a, a few different secondary lenses um so you know future of work demographic change ideology and attitude my control and, uh, you know, pandemics and epidemics, w which has been interesting for us because when we um, pulled together our, our hexagon approach, we had pandemics and epidemics on there and we're having to justify it for, for quite a few years. So it's, it's interesting to see all of those different facets as a part of people risks, because I'm sure, you know, we'll see pandemics and epidemics dominating the risk list for this year in terms of, of people, in, sorry, in terms of risks to people, but the risks from people are just as important to, to consider. Um, you know, what, what's the phrase? Culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and that really, yeah. you know, sits at the heart of the risks from people because you can have the most beautiful risk management system in the world with a, a policy for everything under the sun. But if someone hasn't taken the training to heart and doesn't spot that phishing email or you know, doesn't think the company is doing enough around ESG and, and vents their frustration on social media, then the impacts these days are, are not small. So people risk, you know, goes beyond those those things like social unrest, like pandemics and, and really has a much broader um broader impact just lastly i think i want to touch on cyber risk lucy because mm -hmm. what i quite like about our conversation in the last 15 minutes is that um we've, we've we've kind of really 
highlighted the internet interconnected nature of these risks and, and then using that geopolitical lens. On the cyber topic, you know, cyber is highlighted in the geopolitical section, and the top two risks and megatrends highlighted are cyber-related, business interruption from a, a cyber attack, and data compromise. What cyber risks and hot topics have we seen in the first six months of, of 2020? I think what we've seen is really an acceleration um, and evolution of a lot of the trends that we've been seeing and highlighting for for quite some time. I think, you know, from a, a purely logistical standpoint, we've seen the operational envelope shift from the office into the home. Um, frankly, I don't miss my commute, but I do miss the hard wire connection at my office desk um, when I'm trying to present slides over Teams. Um, but but I think, you know, that that shift of working environment of that controlled area. Um, it is very interesting. Um, and, you know, that example of, of connectivity really just highlights for me that challenge around, you know, cyber interruptions and an interesting, you know, geopolitical trend in stat that deliberate interruptions of internet access are increasing across nation states. Um, there was a report from Keep It On, I think, out at the, in the end of 2019 that said that 33 different countries had, what was it, a combined 213 national or regional internet shutdowns um, and the length of those was increasing. Um, so I think from a ge geopolitical point of view, we're seeing you know that lever around cyber connectivity um, re really starting to be turned. So I think you know there's a real importance of, of balancing long-term thinking with um, you know tactical realization of the value that it's going to be vital for um, for a successful technology strategy. Um, I mean back to our back to our point earlier about you know companies having to make calls to the finance director to to release funds for for laptops. Um, too many projects in the IT world sit on the shelf for too long, and and you can have the opportunity to 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 miss that success point that they were conceived for. And I think that's something that everyone should keep in mind right now with COVID is when have we ever had this kind of pause point where you can look at the direction um, of the company and reconsider your, your capital expenditure and really think about, you know, if we're going to be making investments, then where can we make them in areas that are, are going to give us real benefit? Mm -hmm.